This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Well, welcome to another DSC's campfire, and the campfire this time happens to be close to Roswell, New Mexico. I'm sitting around what once was a campfire that uh, enjoyed for many, many years with a dear friend of mine, Mr. Ron Porter. Ron and I met on a hillside, I think it was down in the southern Lincoln National Forest, probably in the middle 70s. He was a game warden for the New Mexico Game Department, and I was a wildlife biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. We got to know each other, started hunting with each other, hunted together a whole lot in Texas, parts of New Mexico, and on my way to an antelope hunt and had the opportunity to come by and see Ron at his house here in in Roswell, New Mexico. Ron, we did. We met on a hillside, as I recall. Yes, sir, we sure did, in the Guadalupe Mountains. Guadalupe Mountains. I can remember these two men coming from Texas saying, where can we hunt around here? And I thought, anybody willing to ask me where to hunt, I'm going to point them in the right direction. <laughs> you, you did. I'll tell you what. Those were some interesting times because there were a lot of hunters. There were quite a few deer in that area as well, too. But you told us if you drop off in this one canyon and get over the other side, you'll never see anybody. And we did. 
and it was one heck of a canyon, if I remember correctly. It was. We, we got call to... them a Kittrick Canyon, and boy, it was a dance. It was, and the way we got down it is the, the other guy we're talking about is Chuck Dashow. Unfortunately, Chuck passed away not too terribly long ago. We would take a winch and drive up to the edge, drop that winch with the, the uh, uh, whatever we had, uh, like a rope or, or, or cable or whatever, hang on to it and go down to the bottom and then go across and hunt the other ears. And when we killed a deer, we'd drag it back to where the winch was and, and pull that line up. And then somehow another we always seemed to end up. Y'all had a game warden cabin at that time. And y'all yes, introduced, so after our introduction, y'all need to come by the cabin. Yes, sir. We sure did. That cabin, in fact, that cabin's still there. It's not used by the game department anymore, but the game department moved in a trailer, so they've got a little bit fancier diggings than we had when we were there. (laughs) But that country that I told you to get into, generally, at that point, Guadalupe Mountains used to have a world of deer in them. Yes, sir. But when the first shots were fired, those deer knew where to go, and they went to the roughest place they could find because they knew that very few people would ever venture that far. Well, there wasn't really any way to get down into that thing. There were very few cuts going down, and we figured out the only way we could get down quicker and get back out quicker was with that, drop that cable <laughs> down the side and hang on to it and go all the way down the well, bottom. You can blame thing. me. There's one trail that will take you down there. Now you tell us. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you that. But uh, I've taken that trail horseback down there, and there's a lot of times when I... I just close my eyes and let that horse pick his way down through there, hoping that he doesn't get doesn't get vertigo or something. But no, that was that's pretty good country in there, and it produced a lot of good there. It did. It, it was it, those were fun camps. We hunted down there several years. Of course, the best thing that came out of it was our friendship. That's as far right. as I'm I concerned, the deer were totally material. Looking back now, but. you bet. That's been a lot of years, Larry, and a lot of campfires and. You know, when you get to be my age, you look back on nothing but wonderful, wonderful memories. Amen. And I am so full of them that they just, <laughs> you know, they just ooze out of me because I can, I can remember every hunt, every deer, every everything, whether it was a deer, a hog, it doesn't make any difference. I can remember it, and boy, did we have some good times. Oh, my gosh, we did. We got you young guys coming in to hunt Texas. We used to hunt around Abilene near to start with, and then later on we hunted South Texas together and, and parts in between as well, too. Oh, absolutely. And I think Abilene hunt, that's the coldest hunt I was ever on one day. I'm going to, I'm going to, yes, but I want to remind you of another one after that. I saw that storm coming, and I said, Told Dow Shall, I said, that's a storm coming in. He said, well, that's a blue northern. You better get ready. I did shoot a deer, got it over to a water tank, was going to wash it out, tried throwing water in it, and the water froze. And I thought, you know, what am I doing out here? This is cold. And I thought, boy, this this Texas can sure turn down the temperature. (laughs) So... Uh, but that was a good hunt. We had a lot of fun. It was, and that, that was one of the things that I remember. We, we and uh, the other guy with us killed a deer too, and I remember breaking ice so I could get into this concrete 
uh, water trough and get a five gallon bucket and my intentions where I was going to wash that deer after we hung it and I splashed the entire five gallons up in there just as you did with the one that you shot and not a drop hit <laughs> nothing, the ground it froze <laughs> my god this deer's drinking that water or something <laughs> boy it's cold out here the other time when it was cold you and Bill Matoya came down at Hebronville remember we stayed in that little uh, oh that trailer house that's when the, that's when Montoya got out there and was going to play Matador with that bull. Oh, I forgot about that. And boy, did he put my, put Montoya back in that trailer. I mean, that bull was mad. But you know, the good thing about it was that uh, we found out later that entire bottom of that the trailer underneath was a big rattlesnake den. I tell you what, if it hadn't have been so cold, we'd have probably been eaten by <laughs> by spiders, scorpions, and everything else that lived there. I mean, that trailer house, was it was actually condemned about 1813. <laughs> Boy, that was a trailer house. Was, you know, the coldest I have ever been on a hunt, you were there. We were hunting with Greg Simons. And you you and Greg took off. I, I took yes. off to walk a, an area, and you guys took went down the road, and you killed a deer. Yes. And it took a while. And a northern blew in. Yes. And I was so cold and that wind was blowing, the only place I had to hide was to lay in the bar ditch and let the wind blow over. Right over the top of you. And I I never will forget, I saw the headlights coming, you guys coming to pick me up, thinking, oh, mercy, mercy, am I glad to see that. And you guys pulled up and I got in the back and you started to talk to me. And I was so cold, I couldn't say a word. You couldn't say a word. I remember that now, yes. And I thought... I have survived this, you know, two things about Texas. Number one, it can get real cold and it never spends, you never have to spend time taking the night in Texas because it's short. Because <laughs> it doesn't take any time to spend no. the night in Texas. <laughs> it really doesn't. You know, as we're talking, all kinds of things come back that one of those first times you came down, uh, they had issued you guys, meaning game wardens, a uh, nylon type outside down coat. That's right, I remember that. And we were hunting down there close to Abilene on the McGehee Ranch. McGehee Ranch. Yeah, I remember and, that. Uh, and Bill Montoya crawled off into a bunch of Smilex or Greenbrier yeah. and got so tangled up in that dead gum stuff that he had to take his, because it really hung on to that nylon type <laughs> outer coating. He finally had to get out of his jacket so he could get out of that mess. And after that, it was always green barbed wire. Green barbed wire. <laughs> and you know that fellow, that rancher, I, I never will forget going down to that ranch. I saw that line of pickups he had. Oh, yeah. And they were all dented and torn up and everything. And I asked you about it, and you said, well, he's kind of hard on equipment. Yeah. And we went up to visit him, and he's standing there with a half of a crowbar. And I said, what happened to your crowbar? He said, well, I broke it. And I thought, my God almighty, how in the world do you break a crowbar? <laughs> it wasn't very hard for him. And I thought, my, my, I'm glad I'm not around this guy, because he's, hey, no telling what else he'll break. <laughs> no. But he had a good ranch. He, he did. <laughs> yeah. that, that and there was an old buck on that ranch. If you'll remember, I called him, what was his name? I called him the graveyard buck. Remember that? Oh, graveyard? yes. Oh, I, I remember the buck well. I hunted that buck four years yeah. in a row. Yeah. I've been as close to that buck as six feet. Yes. I never got a shot. Yeah. Him. And the last time I saw him, 
Dow Shaw was with me, and I told Chuck, I said, I want you to drop me on this side of this canyon. And you go around, and that buck is going to come out of that canyon. He's mm-hmm. going to cross this opening, mm-hmm. exactly. and I'm going to get him. And I'm sitting there going, you're mine, you're mine. now, rascal. And I was watching Chuck through the glasses, and he got out of his pr- truck. He didn't walk 30 foot, and he jumped that buck. And I saw that buck coming down that little canyon, and I thought, I got you now. He came down to the edge, took one look out in that opening, made a sharp left turn, <laughs> and went straight in that brush. And I thought, you rascal, you. There's no way you saw me. <laughs> but no. I'll tell you what, buck. You have a good life because you have skunked me every Again. year. <laughs> I did see that buck one time at night. Did you? Yeah, we were we drove over. I can't remember why we were driving over toward the cemetery over there because that was just there. The old Butterfield stage was just beyond yep. over on on the, the adjoining ranch, but uh, and that cemetery was part of that and part of the family cemetery as well too. But for whatever reason, Chuck and I were down there and maybe we were varmint hunting, I guess. And we drove by the cemetery, and I mean, this buck was standing there right by us, and he was a nice buck. Well, I was, I've been so close to him. The wind was blowing one day pretty hard, but I had the wind in my face. Right. And I'm sneaking down through there, and I come around one of those little old pinion trees, and he was laying down on the other side. He jumped up, scared me to death. I scared him. He scared me. We both like to fell over from fright, <laughs> and that's the closest I ever went to it. And the last time I saw him was his tail going goodbye. Yeah, waving at you, <laughs> yeah. disappeared. <laughs> oh man, he was a dandy too. Oh my goodness, yeah. There are so many of those bucks we hunted, that, and you got to end hog hunting there for a while, and that was before really hog hunting was. I mean, there were there was a time when people came to deep South Texas. Yeah, they wanted a big trophy whitetail buck, you know, really old big deer. But if they had an opportunity to hog, a lot of times they took a chance of that hog and forgot about the deer for a little bit. And we hunted hogs down there before anybody else was really hunting. I I loved hunting those hogs. We used to hunt on part of the uh, old Callahan Ranch here. And we went to your trophy room earlier today, which is... Ron's trophy room is truly a trophy. It's trophies. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the biggest animals in the world, but everyone that's there has got a story. And then everything that, a, a, a lot of the things that you've accumulated over the years uh, are there. And th- that is, there's so many great memories. I walked in there and I remember this deer and this deer and this deer and this deer. And then the ones I didn't remember, I started asking you about. But that's what that's what it's all about when you get to having those heads and things. Well, like to me, a trophy's in the eye of the beholder. Absolutely. The trophy is the story of the hunt. It it's, is. It's not necessarily well. This is record book. This is that. Everything I've ever taken, I'm never worried about a record book. It's no. immaterial to me. It's the hunt. It's just like that red hog hanging in there. That's where I was going. With you were all with that. me when we shot that yes. red hog. Now, everybody has to understand. I'm red green colorblind. So you and my wife are hollering, shoot that red hog, and I'm going, what red hog? What are you talking about? Well, finally got it done, loaded that hog, and we were getting ready to come home. And uh, you took off, and my wife and I started back towards Roslyn, and we stopped in Laredo. Right. And we're sitting there in a cafe, and all of a sudden my wife starts jumping around like she's got the same virus going on, and I'm going, what the world's the matter with you? And she said, something's crawling on me. 
Ooh, yes. We had forgot and put that red hog in the back of the truck, and then we rode around with that red hog, and he did have a world of ticks. Oh, yeah. So we're sitting there, and I'm going, Lord mercy, don't you get undressed in this restaurant, you know. <laughs> we'll get rid of the ticks later. But I, I never will forget, I'm sitting there trying to keep a straight face, and then they start crawling on me. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, my God. But so we have to mend that red hog. I mean, that's all there is to it. But I never will forget both of you hollers. Shoot that red hog. I'm like, yeah, what I, red I hog? remember you go, what? What are you talking about? I don't see a red hog. I don't see Yeah. If you go out there and paint him blue, I'll find him. <laughs> Lord, don't say a red hog. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There, there are so many of those bucks. We hunted a, a, a place down close to Hebronville for a while, too, that I was manager on it. Primarily a quail place, but we had a few deer on there as well, too. And you had a little corner down there that, of that ranch that you spent a little time in. Oh, yeah. There's two corners. I had sand corner and hog corner. Right. And uh, that was one of the ranches. I always enjoyed that place. But I got so tickled down there one day, Larry. It was, it was during the rut, and I'm driving down the road by myself. And there was brush on both sides. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, this doe liked to took my hood ornament off. And I thought, what in the world got her? And, and of course, I come to a screeching halt. And about that time, this little forky buck plows right into my front <laughs> fender. Yeah. And I'm going, what? <laughs> and it knocks him backwards. And he falls down. And he gets up, shakes his head, looks at me like, what are you doing? Yeah, what is this? What are you? Walks yeah. around the truck real slow, and then takes off after that doe again. I couldn't drive anywhere because I'm sitting there laughing so hard I can't hardly move. But that was down at Hog, at oh, hog yeah. Corner. Yeah, I'll never that, forget that. That was an absolutely fantastic <laughs> place. We had set that country up primarily for quail hunting. Uh, the the winds there are northwest southeast, and so we had like twenty foot of brush and. 40 to 60 foot of clearing and then 20 foot of brush and we had had feeders up for quail and planted all kinds of vegetation in those open strips and water and it was absolutely fantastic honey because we adjoined a ranch at that time there was oh god that ranch is probably 400,000 acres and they didn't hunt so when we had a lot of does on our place it was amazing the number of well, bucks it, it was hard to hunt there on that place because of the quail Oh my if you God, got yeah. out and started to walk or stalk, oh, you, you, couldn't. you couldn't go anywhere no. without flushing a covey of quail. And, uh, and they'd all flush, and then you know that every deer within 150 yards of you is going to take off. Ron, that place was 1,200 acres, and every year we took 1,200 quail off that. I and, never knew the amount you took. And, and literally, that's what we took every year. And when from the time that we'd start, by the time the hunting season was over with, you couldn't tell the difference there. We just had a tremendous number of birds, and it, that's good bird country to begin with. And then with what we did with the water and the feed and make sure that, you know, there's something well, for me to get around. Well, it what I call beeweed. Yes, right? we had a lot of that. And boy, those those quail love that beeweed. Oh, man. We, yeah, that was... That was a good rent. I, of course, one day down there, I thought, well, you know, it's, uh, it's I heard some hogs were coming into an area, yeah. and if there's a hog out there, I'm going to go find that <laughs> rascal. And you had a ground blind. Remember that ground blind that mm -hmm. sat down there? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, it's afternoon, and I'll just sit in that blind and right. see the hogs come in. So I open the door, and I go in the blind, and I sit down, and I hear this rattle. And I'm going, oh, that's not good. So I get to looking around, thinking I've got a rattlesnake in there with me. Well, that silly rattlesnake was underneath the blind. But it didn't take me long to get out of the blind. <laughs> 
because I like to hunt, but I'm not going to share a blind with a rabbit. No, 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 no. And, and I thought, you know what? That hog can come in here. I'm just going to be down the road a little bit. Maybe I'll get him <laughs> I'll down find there. him there. Yeah, right? Maybe I'll find him there. Because that, that, that ranch did grow some big snakes. That area grows big. I'm sure it still does. I remember we had a tripod down there in that one corner. Yep, that's right. And, and there was a time or two when I would sit up in that tripod, and that tripod, the leg span, the diameter from one or the distance from one to the other, there'd be rattlesnakes crawling underneath there. Usually in the first part of December, they were hidden into that bigger ranch because I guess there was a bunch of dens or stuff there. But there'd be times when you look down onto a snake and the head would be at one leg and the tail would be the other one. And it is right at eight feet across the distance there. That's so. one of those times I'm going to say, well, I'm getting ready to spend the night here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wait for a cold front to come in and move them, move them silly snakes away from here. God, there were some big rattlesnakes down there. And oh. I said, I'm sure there still are. You spent a lot of years as a game warden, as a field game warden. But then you also ended up being the southeastern supervisor for the New Mexico Game Department. Yeah, I, uh, I started out as a regular district officer. Right. I started out in the north at Navajo Lake, lived in Gallup for a while, yes, sir. and then I moved to Carlsbad. And after I was a district officer for a few years, then I was promoted up to basically the law enforcement specialist. I, right. I did the undercover work. If there was undercover things to be done in, in, in law enforcement with wildlife, then that's what I did. And then I did that for, I guess, about five years, and then they called me to Headquarters one day and said, you're going to be the area supervisor for Southeast New Mexico. So at that point, then I had, I guess, uh, seven game wardens working for me and we took care of everything in the Southeast. You did. And literally those areas were like taken a, right through the middle of New Mexico, north and south, in the That's middle right. of, of New Mexico, east and west. And where then there were those, only four, those areas. four quarters up yeah, there. Four corners. And, uh. I was, I was stationed here in Roswell, and that's where I finally wound up when I retired. Right. Right here in Roswell. Now, you, you did, you, we talked, I, I wish I'd have had this thing running earlier. We've told so many stories. I've listened to so many stories, ones that I've heard, and that, so many new ones. that I've just, I've laughed ever since I've gotten here. But you were involved in all kinds of covert type things, doing undercover work, uh, trying to stop people from bringing in snakes, feathers, but you've told me some interesting stories about some of the snake stuff that you got into. Well, ain't nobody in this world that, that dislikes snakes more than I do, so therefore, I became the snake specialist. Yeah, I, I, well, obviously, yeah, not, you were the top Not to my course. liking, but I did, and I did undercover work on people that were capturing and selling endangered snakes. Right. I had no idea of the money that can be made selling endangered rare species and i i come to the conclusion is if you call it endangered you just raise the, price. raise the prices i'll be darned and uh some of the like the little transpacus rat snake it's it's a docile snake it, it's very calm mm -hmm. but it's worth a lot of money on the black market and i had no re people like myself walk down the street and meet people all the time but you have no idea of the black market that occurs in wildlife. And I found that out when I dealt with snakes. I found it out when I dealt with raptors, with big game animals like mountain lions. Mountain lion, yes. 
feathers from the Indian tribes that there is, I told a person one time that I was, I gave a speech and I told him, I said, these people that go out there and, and deal in drugs, they're crazy. They get caught, they're going to the pen. You can make four times the money dealing in wildlife. And I got to know different dealers in wildlife. The biggest dealer in wildlife at that time happened to be a Chinaman. Really? But if you said, I want an albino gorilla, he would find you he an albino gorilla if you had the money. And he was the biggest dealer. And I, I even had things coming from him that I intercepted before they got, you know, right. sold on the market. But there's a, there's a heck of a market. And snakes, gosh, I, I had to deal with those people that they treated snakes like their kids, you know. And I'm going, oh, Lord, mercy. Yeah. I had one fella, I told you about him, that I, I took him in New Mexico and I prosecuted him here. And then he moved to Texas. I was invited to go down by your Texas wardens and assist them because I knew this individual. He had a son, five years old, living in his house, doing anything a five-year-old does, but he also had a Komodo dragon in the house that had the run of the house. I can't imagine. Now, what could possibly go wrong with that scenario? Everything. You know, and I'm thinking, Everything. I'm thinking, don't you have a brain cell working, fella? You know. I can't imagine but that. I, dealing honestly. with those type of people, they have a mentality that's different than you and I. Obviously. And some of the things they do, some of the things they want, uh, some of the things they want because they're endangered. <clears throat> I dealt a lot with raptors also. There's a raptor in southeast New Mexico called a Harris hawk. We have a bunch of them in South Texas, as you they remember, They love too. them. The falconers yeah. love them because they're a very docile snot. Uh, right. I seized one, and I had him in my backyard, mm -hmm. taking care of it. My wife and kids were taking care of it. That falcon, that falcon wound up with more air line miles than anything because the feds would call me and say, we need him for an undercover operation in New Jersey. That's fine and dandy. I'd crate him up, put him on the airplane, and save him in New Jersey. <clears throat> Two months later, here he comes back, you know. And, of course, we had to name him Harry, naturally. He's a Harris hawk. But uh, <laughs> dealing with people like that, it, it, I traced a falcon one time from Alaska to Saudi Arabia. I know that they're big on that And I tried thing to figure there. out, Larry, how are they smuggling them? Right. And when I started the undercover operation, I got it figured out. You know who was taking them? No. Airline pilots. They don't get checked at the airport then. You know what? You're right. Back in then, they just walked on board. Well, they would take Guess the, what? They would take a jeer falcon from Alaska and he would wind up in Saudi Arabia and he would want a jeer falcon at that time, and this is years ago, a jeer falcon was worth about fifty thousand. Good gosh. That's just for a young bird. That's for a young bird. <coughs> oh my gosh, I had no idea. Oh yes, absolutely. Well transpake a trash snake, a little old snake that most people run over with their car. A good one back east is worth a thousand dollars.
because they don't have them. And they're in the danger list at that point. Yeah. So lots of money. And that's what I did for about a month, a little over four years, was deal with those individuals. And, of course, you get into all kinds of things. I, I was following a, a raptor smuggler. <clears throat> Come to find out, I was trying to figure out how he made his money. Well, he was making his money by also smuggling opals out of Australia to Mexico, Mexico to here. here. And I thought, okay, that's where he's getting his money. <laughs> that's where he's getting his money to finance yeah. everything else he was doing and to have money to go along with it. <clears throat> I'll be darned. But those were days when, and I'm sure it's going on today. The problem is, in nowadays society, I can tell you right now, there are no undercover operations going on in the New Mexico Department of Game and yeah. Fish. And I doubt that there's more than one or two in the state of Texas. Yeah. I, I knew some of their undercover officers. Right, right. And uh, generally they are on the coast dealing with fish, illegal fish and shrimp and crabs and that kind of stuff, but the days that, that we took care of all wildlife and not just those that the environmentalists were concerned about, uh, those days are no longer with us, I don't think. No, and, and it's unfortunate. It really is, it really is. Wildlife is such a valuable, valuable product that people do not realize the value of the wildlife. It's, it's just like, well, everybody in the United States has heard the story of the buffalo. Right. You know, that there were literally hundreds of thousands of buffalo, and they wound up at one time less than 200. Yes. And uh, it's all because of poaching and killing and not taking care of the wildlife right. product. <laughs> yeah, thankfully there were a few individuals that, you know, we got we got to do something about this. Yes. Thank and, goodness. And let's, let's save them. You know, the same thing comes true. Of course, elk populations went down years ago, and oh, pronghorn yeah. antelope populations went down, and all those kind of things. And there were guys like Teddy Roosevelt and those who were around him that he, and a bunch of other folks too, but they were the ones who really kind of brought it to the forefront and said, okay, we got to do something here. Well, it's just like the days of the railroad when they were. the United States was putting in railroad from one coast to the other. They hired people that did nothing but kill wildlife to feed oh, the yeah. crews that were working on the railroad. And those crews were big. And they were And they had to eat well. And they ate well. Antelope, deer, elk, yeah. bighorn sheep, anything. Yeah. You know. And that's what happened to a lot of it. I appreciate the fact that some of the states have taken the initiative to protect their wildlife to the point of managing them. Yes. If you don't manage... You've got no control. No, no. No, you start you start having problems with habitat and all those other kind of things as well. Well, it's like some of the ranchers in, in the state of Texas. I always appreciated those people that was taking those endangered animals and rearing them on their ranches. Yes. That keeps that animal from becoming extinct. And they're using their money, their ranch, and I give them all the credit in the world for doing that. And a lot of people go, what are you doing with that wildlife? You're going to kill it. You're going to do it. No, 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 no. No. You don't understand. No. 
they're they're saving as as much as they can. They're saving absolutely. Yeah, they do take animals, but sure. that that helps pay for That's everything right. that goes well, on. So they can take, you have to take a few. Yeah, you know, or you all of a sudden it's just like dinosaurs. If the dinosaurs hadn't have died off, we'd be up to our ears in dinosaurs. You know? <laughs> we would be. I we probably wouldn't be here. I don't need a pterodactyl out there sitting <laughs> on my fence, you know. Exactly. But uh, you have to manage wildlife if you're going to do anything. But in the process of doing that, you can get into some real problems like working with snake dealers and, and raptor dealers and so forth, that, you know. I can remember years ago when you'd show up in Texas during hunting season with stories. Sometimes you could tell me stories about them. Sometimes you had to kind of kind of work the edges yeah, yeah. a little bit. Couldn't, I can't tell you everything yeah, yeah, because, exactly. you know, yeah, there's still some on. operations kind of going on. we got to be quiet about all this. That's right. You, you tell me about some of the things, particularly on the snake things, because I'm not a snake person either. I, I, I realize their roles, and I appreciate them for that. But I don't want to have to deal with them. And how you did, I had well, no earthly idea. Me dealing with them, I, I remember I, I took down a snake dealer. He crossed the line from Texas, New Mexico, and I was waiting for him. I had a search warrant, and I seized all the snakes. 22 snakes he had. And I went directly, I, I arrested him, and I went directly to the magistrate and said, here's the man, here's what I got. Handle it. I'm going to take these snakes to the Living Desert State Park yeah. and put them up there in their snake exhibit. Right. And that wonderful magistrate looked at me and said, no, you're not. That's evidence, chain of evidence, and you are responsible for keeping that chain of evidence. I'll go, well, this is going to be nice, particularly when I call my wife <laughs> and tell her, honey, would you get in the car and go to every store in town and buy nothing but aquariums and she's going okay <laughs> well I brought all these snakes home and put them in the care aquariums and of course my kids you know they didn't go in the room I had a at that time a, a, my daughter had a cat cat oh, walked in there and we lost the cat never saw the cat again uh, <laughs> I can imagine opened yeah. the door and the cat was gone yeah and I kept track of that. Some of these snakes were very, very venomous. Yes. And uh, I thought, okay. And I got rid of them after the court case. I took them to Living Desert State Park and this and this. And I, right. I got to look at one day and I thought, that aquarium's empty. What do we have in there? Well, we had a corn snake. I thought, well, he's here in the house somewhere. So I told my wife, I said, not to panic you or yes, anything, but just to make if you you're work. making the bed and you turn it back and there's a snake there, don't worry, it's just a corn snake. Well, it was a few days later, a little old kid came up to the front door and knocked on the door. My wife answered the door and said, Ms. Porter, do you know what kind of snake this is? And it got ran over in the, in the street. Oh, my goodness. And my wife said, oh, yeah, I know what kind of snake that is. I know what that is. Don't worry. But, you know, those stories... I'm going, my kids are going, oh, Dad, what did you bring home this time, you know? Because as a game warden, there's a lot of times you have to take care of whatever you see. Yeah. I've had everything from javelinas in the backyard, bobcats in the house. Uh, brought home a bobcat one time that I'd seized, and he was real docile. And took him to the vet, had him wormed, 
he became a holy terror. Uh, my wife threatened him. She'd whip him with a broom if she had to, you know. But you got to take care of those things. I had deer in the backyard, javelinas in the backyard. <laughs> I had a dog, a big black lab. And I brought home a little javelina one time, baby javelina that I'd taken away from some people. And right. Put him in the backyard until I could find a home for it. And this dog looks at that javelina like, what have you done? What is this? And the little javelina right, went right over to the dog's doghouse, walked inside and urinated. And my dog looked at me like, what have you done to me? That dog had the expression you would never believe, Larry. Like, holy mackerel. I can't believe you've done this to me. But my wife, that little thing would follow my wife. She goes to the feed store one day. We got a big feed store here in town. And uh, she takes the javelina with her. So she's walking in the feed store and this javelina's following her like a puppy. Healing her. Healing all the way. But if anybody got close to her, he'd turn around and snap his little jaws. Yeah. You know, snap, snap, snap. And people are looking at him going, that's the meanest dog I've ever seen. That's the ugliest dog I've ever seen. And she's just grinning and carrying on. Oh my God, I can imagine. But, you know, I seized a bear one time from mountains up here in Sacramento, cub. Brought him home, took care of him for a couple of days, and I thought, I gotta find a home for this right. rascal. So up in northern New Mexico, there was a place up there that, uh, oh, what was that lady artist's name? I can't remember her name. Another one you're talking about. I can't remember yeah. the name either, but. But up there, there was a little museum. Mm -hmm. and I took that little cub up there and said, here's a little bear, and you take good care of him because he's, you know, good little bear. A few years later, and it had to be, Larry, it had to be eight or ten years later. I got a call saying, you're not going to believe the size of that bear you brought up here. My God, that thing looked like he weighed 500 pounds. He probably did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought, boy, he had a good life. <laughs> yeah, he, he did have a good life. <laughs> but there, there's been a lot of stories of, you know, of wildlife that goes on. And, and the thing about it is I got to meet a lot of nice people. I got to meet a lot of bad people, but... The good always outweighs Wait, the bad. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It really does. It, it really does. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I've enjoyed with the career that I've had is the people I've got the opportunity to spend around, you know, the places I've gotten to see. But, but it still comes back down to the people that you're around. Sure. Uh, you can be in the worst place in the world from a, uh, a place situation. You're around good people. Oh, my God. It makes all the difference in the world. That's right. And it can be the opposite, too. You can be in the oh, best yeah. place in the world. Thankfully, they're not, in, in my dealings, I hadn't dealt with that many people I didn't want to be around. But there have been one or two, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and they sure can I've make been in places before and I thought, oh, if I can just make it to the door, I'll be out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'll be out of here. <laughs> Ron, you and, and your wife, Marcia, unfortunately, this Marcia passed away a few years ago, but she was such a truly special lady in so many different, different ways. And I, I always so much long to spend the time that I got with y'all guys. <laughs> And we had so much fun in, in, in a lot of different things. But as you were talking about some of the things you had in your house, uh, y'all got into taxidermy pretty good. And ended up, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I came through Roswell, came by the house, and or it may have been, may have been in Carlsbad, and y'all were still in Carlsbad, and uh, sat down in a chair, and next to me was a bird on a, 
on a, a little limb sort of thing. And I'd look at that bird and I'd go, that bird would not move. I'd look at that bird, <laughs> that bird not move. After about 30 minutes, I finally, I said, Porter, did you, is this bird, has it had taxidermy work done on it? And you just burst out laughing. I remember that. Burst out laughing. And about that time, the bird started moving around. But I was convinced you had mounted that bird like a little parakeet looking thing. Put it there just so somebody would come back. Yep. Kind of be looking at it. That was here in town when we lived in town over there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I remember now with that. That bird could sit there and not even blink. No, it, I mean, I'd, I'd sit there and stare at it thinking, <laughs> Porter has got to have mounted that darn thing and put it there just to mess with people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord, yeah. Now, you got to admit, I got into tax derby. Why can I got into tax Big derby? Big time. Because of you. You're the Uh-oh. one started. <laughs> You said, oh, yeah, you can do that. Oh, no, of course you can. Yeah, of course no, you can. You know what? I remember that now. We yeah. did. We, Here, we, here's a set of instructions. Go yep. for it. Well, you know, after a few years, we got pretty darn good at it. I'll tell you what. Y'all were we, we did a good good We did it. a lot of antelope because this is antelope country. Right. You know, we would do 60, 70 antelope a year. Yeah. And uh, it, it it paid off for us for many years and, until she got sick. And then I, we closed up the shop right. and said, been a good career, but uh, we'll just forget yes, it now. But yeah, we we did a, we did tax steering for a long time, and it was always good. When I was still working for, I was tax at night and worked the department <laughs> during the day. But it was always good because I could relate, I'd make the people relate to wildlife through yes. the tax and not know that I was law enforcement. So I used it in, in, ah, that, yes. in that aspect, you know. Always had a picture, too. Oh, look at the deer I got. Well, yeah, I mounted it, you know, all this other stuff. So it always gave me kind of an in. It did. And, and took them from, is this guy a cop? To, uh, ah, he's just, <laughs> he's okay. he's just an old regular <laughs> job, yeah, you know. Exactly. And then I could get in and get the information I needed and get back out and go on about miraculous. <laughs> And the other side of that, though, because both you and Marsha had a really great eye, for an artistic eye, but also you and she both knew the habits of those animals that you mounted. And so that you, you, you would put personalities into them, but you had them in the right poses and all that kind of thing, not something that just kind of off the wall. Yeah, well, if if you looked at them, you knew that whoever had mounted this, they knew what those animals were and how they acted and what they did. I used to love going with her and we'd see Texter and she'd go, well, that one's too stiff. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's too stiff. It, it doesn't have a natural pose right, to it. Right, And she would, oh, she would, she did the good finish work. I did all the rough work. And, <laughs> but she made them look good. But she'd spend hours putting them in the same right position that Absolutely. she liked. Yeah. And then she'd, when she was satisfied, then that was good enough. Then it, no, and that was, yeah. no, that wasn't just good enough. It was perfect. <laughs> well, she had the eye. I, I'll give her that credit. I guarantee it. I did the I did the harder work and you know let her do the good work and but yeah we uh, we did that for quite a few years. Yes, you did. Years. Gained quite a reputation yeah, as taxidermist well, yeah. during those years too. Uh, we've got stuff in museums. Yeah. Mm. I, I had museums call me and say, "Can you mount this and this and that?" I said, "Sure, absolutely. Send it down here. And we'll get her done." Oh my God, Rob. <laughs> Even, I did one for the Corps of Engineers, of all things. Really? A beaver for the Corps of Engineers. Interestingly, 
Yeah, go one of their museums. Hmm. I went, okay, send it on down. Send it on down, we'll, get, yeah. we'll get it taken care of. Send it on down here, we'll take care of it. I, I had a movie company come to me one time. They were doing a Western movie out here west of town, and they said, we want a mounted vulture. And I said, can't have it. Right. Vulture is a protected, yes. federally protected bird. Well, what are we going to do? I said, well, I'll build you one. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to build one? I said, that's not your problem. But I'll build you one out of a hen turkey. Oh, yeah. So I built him a vulture out of a hen turkey. And I got to see the movie. Got to see my vulture. Got to see your vulture. Yeah. He's sitting up there on this Indian burial right. platform looking at the Indian. I'm going, yeah, that's my vulture. <laughs> <laughs> and then they came back to me and they said, uh, can you mount a dead horse? And I said, nope. You're not going to mount a dead horse. No, no. You're getting too big for this child, yeah. you know. Well, we need a horse that'll lay there. I said, well, you're going to have to knock him out or something. Yeah. I'm not going to taxidermy a horse, you know. But, uh, well, today when I got here, and unfortunately I'm going to have to leave early in the morning, but you like to do mechanic work too. Oh, I Obviously. Like <laughs> Obviously, obviously, based upon the tractors, the road graders, the uh, what all do you have out there? Well, I've got regular farm tractors. I got backhoes. I got road graders. I got bulldozers, and uh, I just enjoy working on them. Uh, somebody asked me one time, "Said you going to sell them?" I go, "No, I didn't get them to sell them." And they said, "Well, you're going to restore them?" And I said, "Well, there's a difference in restoring." Restoring to me is, is putting them back like they rolled off the showroom store. Right. I said, I put their working clothes back on them to where they're, they're good running vehicle, tractor. And uh, the oldest one I told you I've got is a 1937 Alice Chalmers. <laughs> That's not that far from a 100-year-old tractor now. The reason I like the 37 is because he's just a couple years older than I am. <laughs> and, uh, but... I just enjoy that equipment. I enjoy being able to work on it. And I, I told one person that I must be running a home for unloved tractors. Because people I know have come to me and said, we got this tractor, we don't want it anymore. Here, have it. And I said, you bet, I'll take it. Now, it may be a piece of junk when I get it, but when it's all said and done, at least it'll run. Yes. And to me, that's important. I have a lot of fun and and I've learned quite a bit. I have a sign in my tractor barn out there. You didn't notice it. it sits on the back wall, big sign. It says, when in doubt, figure it out. I did see that. And that's like my that. motto for working on those tractors. So That's cool. Yeah. yeah it really is. When in so, doubt, figure it out. Yeah, I saw the sign, and I meant to ask you about it. We, a, we were talking about so many other different things. When I was a kid, my parents would send me back to my grandfather, who was a farmer. Right. And he's the one that taught me to drive tractors and be a farmer and drive combines. And I was doing all this. The only thing I'd drive for that was a bicycle. You know, I wasn't old enough to do anything else. But as you know, farm kids start start very young. Yes, sir. And I guess that's where I got my love for these tractors. And it, it's just something that I, I really, really enjoy. And I... Uh, I've had some good stories on those. I told my wife one time when I brought home a road grader that I 
I stopped along the road into my house, and she was out there, and I told her, I said, look what followed me home, honey. <laughs> well, and of course, I got that stink face look, you know. Uh, like, oh, yeah, it followed you home. It's there on that trail. <laughs> They got it, Paul. Y'all just passing you up, yeah, kind of thing. Didn't pass me. I got it. <laughs> and then I've had people say, "Okay, I know this tractor here. It's been out there on that farm for 20 years, hadn't moved, and they want to get rid of it. And they're going to junk it, and rather than do that, we'll bring it to you." And it's interesting. There's a lot of old history in some of those old tractors. Yes, you sir. Know. But it's a lot of fun. I was telling you the story this afternoon. One tractor that I that I own now was sent to El Paso on a train, was put on a different train, went from there to Carrizosa, New Mexico. And from there, the old boy drove it to his ranch or farm at that time. And that was 30 miles down the highway. Oh my gracious. I can imagine him driving a tractor 30 miles down the highway. It's a Minneapolis Moline UTU. And I thought, I bet he drew a lot of people saying, what in the world are you doing out here? <laughs> But, you know, there's a lot of old stories with tractors, and I enjoy working on them. Oh, my gosh, yes. You spent some time, too, guiding, because we had you guiding on a couple oh, yeah. of ranches that I was involved in. and Those are always, I, I loved when you came down, because your knowledge of wildlife and your knowledge of people and, and all that kind of stuff, everybody that ever got a chance to hunt with you, and then whenever they book again, says, well, I'll come back as long as Porter's my guy. <laughs> I had one hunter that I... I hunted antelope with him five years in a row up north, and he told him, he said, I'm not coming unless Porter can be my guide. I said, well, I'll go up there this year and guide you again. But I never will forget him. He was from Minot, North Dakota. Minot, North Dakota. And I told him one day, I said, man, it is cold up there. Yeah. What are you doing? He said, I'm a lineman. And I went, you're crazy. Oh, a lineman in North Dakota climbing poles and cold? Anyway, we were hunting antelope. We saw an antelope one evening. He looked at that antelope, and he said, that's a pretty good antelope. I said, no, that is a dang good yeah. antelope. He said, how big is that antelope? And I said, I'll tell you what. I will write the length of the horns on this piece of paper. Right. And I said, I'm going to put it in my pocket. We're going to come out here, and tomorrow morning, we're going to kill it. Right. And I said, and when I show you that paper... I said, I'll be within a half an inch. And he goes, no, you won't. And I said, yeah, I think I will. The next morning we went out there and we looked and looked and looked. And I finally found that antelope. And this old boy was a good shot. He uh -huh. knocked that antelope down with one shot. We get up there and we take care of the antelope. And he says, oh, the paper. I said, yeah. He said, you going to show me? And I said, yeah. But first of all, he put a tape on that horn. Yeah. So he taped it, and he said, I don't believe the length of this horn. I reached my pocket and I handed him the paper. He looked at it, and he said, you missed it by a quarter of an inch. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I sure did. And I thought to myself, you lucky rascal porter. You could never do that again. And don't ever do that again. And don't ever do that again. Yeah. <laughs> but that antelope measured 18 and 3 eighths. Oh, my gosh. It was a horse of an animal. Yes. And beautiful. Oh, yeah, my beautiful. gosh. Well, New Mexico over the years has produced some unbelievable animals. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I've looked at some. I don't think I've ever seen one that was quite that long. 
But I've looked at some here that were, you know, 17, 17 and a little bit kind of thing. And a lot of them were the real lyre shaped kind of thing where they hook way back down and long prongs. And I've been going on the Sandlope hunt and uh, this is kind of below the T.O. Ranch, which is kind of uh, just east of Raton. And I used to hunt it a lot for antelope years ago. But what I'm seeing this year, the photographs I've seen of bucks that have taken so far, they're extremely massive, Ron. I mean, like... And almost a half an inch to an inch more mass on each one of the measurements. Wow. So I'm not sure, you know, are they older? Are they, did, did the nutrition get I them just it, right? I think or? it's nutrition. Here in southeast New Mexico, we used to have a world of antelope. I mean, I had ranches that I was issuing like 200 permits. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing those kind and, of. And now those ranches get five permits. Yeah. We had a big die off of antelope. Oh, well, pretty long time ago. Yeah. And they're starting to come back, but we've been in such a drought that it's unreal. A c- continual drought. Now, I mean. the biggest, the state record came out of Carrizozo. Yes. And uh, I think he's pushing 19, isn't he? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think, it, there, I know there's one, and I think that's the one I'm thinking about. The yeah. ranch that I was telling you about that this guy from mine out hunted, I had an antelope the first year he hunted with me. He said, I like that antelope. I said, yeah. I said, that's, that's peep sight. He said, you name these antelope? I said, look at his horns. They came together just like a peep sight on a rifle. Yeah. And he said, okay, I want peep sight. I want peep sight. So we got him. And uh, next year he comes back and says, can you beat peep sight? And I said, yeah, I got a son located. <laughs> <laughs> But we've had a lot of fun guiding, and I met some very, very interesting people uh, guiding. I was guiding on a ranch in Texas, had a hunter come in. He ran an oil field supply company. He had money. He asked me one day, he said, do you mind... If I cook tonight, I said, oh, Lord, no, man, Come, my, please my do, cook yes. was, what are we going to do? And he said, we're going to have a shrimp boil. <laughs> I said, I never had a shrimp boil. He said, you're in for a surprise. So he calls some of his workers in here. They show up from Louisiana <laughs> with everything for a shrimp boil. I mean, we were standing around knee deep in shrimp holes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And he said, what are we going to do with these? And I said, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with these. We're going to take them down the road and hunt pigs in the morning. Yes. And we did. We took them down really? the road and got shooting pigs off of them in the morning. Well, that I mean, they have a yeah. tremendous, not necessarily odor or aroma, depending on how you well, look at it. Well, they got aroma on <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, meeting interesting people like that, uh, he told me, he said, they're in the bust. He said... I didn't go bust, but he said I had a lot of companies that I told them, well, pay me later. And he said, I suffered, Ron. But he said, then the boom came back, and they all remembered me. Yes. He said, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sitting very good right now, as you can tell by the plane that I own that we flew in on. And I said, yeah, I got that figured out. (laughs) Yep. Got that figured out. But I've guided people like Fred Bear, the archer, and uh, which was a fine, fine gentleman. Uh, 
the guy that played Mingo on on Daniel Boone. Yeah, the Daniel Boone. Ed Ames. Ed Ames, yes. And uh, Robert Stack. And I got to meet all these people that I would never got to do had I not been in that position. And they're just interesting, interesting people. And, of course, there's always a few in there that you want to forget. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's so few. Yeah, there's so few. I think maybe one, maybe two. I know that there's a lot of folks that are listening to this. They know Fred Barry is. They may remember Ed Ames. Yeah. They may remember Robert Stack from The Untouchables. Right. You know, and Robert Stack was one heck with shotgun shots. Oh, he was he was a tremendous shotgun shooter. It seemed to me like he was on the All American Trap and Skeet team there for several yeah, years he was. way back when. Yeah. But Fred Baird, you know, is just is an icon as far as most people is concerned. Yeah, Whether they're bow hunters or not. Yeah, but he boy, he and uh Howard Hughes Howard Hughes yes. was a long bow hunter. He oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Killed an, killed an elephant with a yes. longbow. And between those two, they basically started... Howard Hill. Howard Hill. Howard Hill, yes. Howard Hughes was the pilot that yes. flew the blue screws or whatever. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, Howard Hill. But, you know, they're, they're the what you would call the, the fathers of modern They are, culture. yeah. Really? Yeah, I've seen the photographs of you and you know, Fred Bear and the... the Where'd y'all, you were hunting mule deer, right? Hunting mule deer on the Hickory Apache Reservation up north. And Ed Ames, we hunted elk on the Chamberlain and Cattle Company. And uh, Robert Stack, that was a goose hunt on the San Juan River. Yeah, and he was a big bird hunter. Oh, he loved to hunt birds. But uh, it, it's, it was interesting. We saw some interesting people and had some interesting times and you sit around and you get to visit with people like that that you don't normally even associate with. Right. And listen to their stories. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, they talk about some of their past hunts, and you're going, how about that? You know, when you think about it, Larry, the hunting community is a pretty small community. It is. And you, you talk about one person, well, yeah, I know I know him, or I've seen his work, or right. I've seen his pictures, and, you know, that kind of stuff, and uh, back in those days, you know, that was back in the days when the American Sportsman was a big TV program. Really kind of started that trend that we saw yeah. that I was involved in for a long time. Well, I still I gotta, am to some extent. But. I got to tell you the story. I uh, I got a call one day from the director of the game department. Yes, sir. He said, the director of the American Sportsman show is coming to New Mexico with his wife. And they're going to Chama, and I want you to take care of them for three or four days while right. they're in Chama. Be their guide, do whatever they want. I've got permission for them to go fishing on Chama land and cattle country. I said, fine. So I haul my little self up to Chama, and I meet this gentleman. And I took a look at his wife and went, whew, that is one good-looking lady. Uh-huh. One good-looking lady. And uh, he wanted to sleep most of the time, and she wanted to fish, so I'd take her fishing, right. and we'd do this, and we'd do that. Went on for a few days, and everything was fine, and they took off. And I thought, you know, that was very pleasurable. I, I enjoyed the pleasure of their company. They were right. nice people. I got back, and I'm in the grocery store in Farmington one day, and I'm looking through the magazine rack, well, there's a Playboy there. 
I open it up, <laughs> and there's Miss August. He was married to Miss August. <laughs> I'm the good Lord, I cannot tell my wife. I, I'll tell my wife, oh, that was a horrible trip. Oh, that was a terrible trip. You know, and I thought, nobody's going to believe I'm escorting this lady around to fishing holes where she could right. go fishing. You know? <laughs> and I thought, nobody going to believe that. Oh, my gosh. My wife's right. certainly not going to believe it. <laughs> but, you know, it's just stories like that. that it, you know, they're funny, but you remember them all. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Interesting thing about the Chamberlain and Company, they had one lake up there that had nothing but golden trout in it. Oh, really? Yeah. It stopped it specifically mm -hmm. for golden mm -hmm. trout. I had never seen golden trout until I got up there. Beautiful, beautiful fish. Absolutely I've only beautiful. seen photographs of them. I've never right. seen, yeah, I know that they exist in certain areas, but yeah. I'll be darned. Well, they had, they had got them somewhere and stocked them in their own pond. Well, I think there was a strain of golden trout somewhere in some of the streams in mountains of California, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know I, where they got know, them from. I think that's where they came from. I remember reading an old outdoor life story. This goes back probably 1960s or something <laughs> like that. And there was a story in there that, about the golden trout of California. And they were absolutely beautiful. Oh, they are. But I got to talk to different people, Larry, and you know me, I enjoy rifles and everything. And uh, I enjoyed reading about Ackley, who developed a lot of rifles. Oh, yes. I have two rifles chambered to what he developed, one of them being what you and I call Pup. Yes. Little twenty two thirty thirty. Yes. Little fire breathing dragon. Oh my God! It was is it ever? <laughs> oh Lord of mercy! And then I've I've got a thirty five thirty five Whalen. Yes. That's, that's I love. I know. I remember those two. Those two guns always came to Texas with yeah. you. Oh yeah. Like. Well, the gun that I had, I had both of them made, custom made, by a gunsmith in Albuquerque. I knew him. He was a good friend. Right. Well. I was stationed here when I wanted my my 350. So Dan Persley, who you knew, yes, living in Albuquerque, says I'll pick it up, bring it to you, Ron. I got to come down here anyway. He goes to the to the gunsmith and says, "Is Ron's gun race?" Oh yeah. He handed it to Persley, and Persley said, "What in the world did you do to it? The barrel's really short." I said, "Do you understand, Ron? He's a short barrel man. You ever yes. hear him talk?" If you can't take a rifle and turn it around inside of a cab of a pickup, it's too dang long. It's too dang long, right. And he says, that's wrong. Okay, okay. send it home. <laughs> but I had trouble with that 350, and uh, I had I was hunting you one time, and I closed the bolt, and the gun went off. I remember that. Remember? Yes, sir. So I sent it back to the gunsmith, and uh, God, I loved him. He told me, he says, that didn't happen. I said, it dang it, sure it did. did. Yeah. He said, that's my gun. It didn't happen. And I said, here it is. You fix it. He put that gun in vice in his gun shop, put a round in it, closed it, and it went off. Shot another <laughs> vice down the Oh, my gracious. Splintered, put shrapnel in his own son. Oh, my goodness. You know, and his name was Bud Rubino. He's passed now. Oh, yeah, that all that brings back great memories with that yep. name. Yeah, and he he called me and he said, "Okay, uh, okay. yeah, uh, I won't talk, I won't talk stories about you no more, Ron." 
He said, dang near kill me. <laughs> I said, well, I told you. But I wanted that 22-30-30, and I wanted on a martini action. Yeah. He had a bucket full of martini actions. And he told me, no, 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 you'll never get one of my martinis. He said, but I will put it on a Ruger for you. Yeah. And so that's what it's on. It's like Ruger number three. Yes, Ruger number three. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I love that gun. I shot all kinds of stuff with it when you break Texas. I'm trying to steal it from you every time well, you're down. I, I got it, and I had to have RCBS in California make me die yes. for it. And I loaded up what they said to load it for. I took it to the range, and I fired it. Nothing. Couldn't, there wasn't anything in the target. I'm like, what in the world's going on? Shot it again, shot it again. Finally went up and looked at that target. And I thought, something's wrong here. Well, I had loaded it so hot that that little bullet was diminishing before it hit yeah, the target. Yeah, so you... It was just coming apart. Yeah. So I toned it down a little bit. Yeah. And everything worked fine. And guess what? <laughs> Back, yeah, you could pretty and the accuracy yeah. was fantastic because yeah. I remember that little rifle being yeah. unbelievably accurate. It shoots so well. But uh, my son happened to see it the other day, and he said, what are you going to do with that? And I said, well, no, what are you going to do with it yeah. when I'm gone? Yeah. He said, you're the only one who knows how to load for it. You know, you don't, you don't buy ammo no, for it. No, no, no. I said, no, you sure don't. But old Bud Romino, he was a good, yes, good sir. gunsmith. Yeah, he, he built He was good, well known. He was very well known. You're right. Yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten that he was the one that built those guns for you. Yep. Yeah, mm. he, he worked for Domenici Sporting Goods there for a long time. And, of course, he had his own shop also. Right. But he was a really good gunsman. Really good. Uh, he only uh, stood uh. about four foot six. I mean, he's a little But stocky as a mule, you know, I swear he was stocky. <laughs> Boy, shoot. You didn't want to tangle with him, I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> I can imagine that, by God. <laughs> but he was, he was a quality gunsmith. Yes, he sir. really was. Yes, and those sir. people do not exist anymore. If they do, they're hard to find. There, you know, there's some quality good... Quality gunsmiths. There, there's some... You're right. There are some good gun makers. But when you get down to the, the gunsmith that knows everything about every part of it like those guys did. Yeah. These guys, these days, you know, a guy may know about a barrel, he may know about an action, very seldom do they ever really put it you know, together to where they know everything there is to be known about those rifles. But there are some unbelievably good accurate rifles these days. Well, I called you. Bud one day and I said, Bud, I got a shotgun. And I said, I think it's still loaded. And he said, how old is it? And I told him. Right. He said, yeah. I said, well, how do I unload it? Yeah. And he said, I'll send you a, a screw that you put on your cleaning rod. He said, maybe you can get yes, it loose. Yes, right. Well, I got one barrel clear. It was loaded with little tiny rocks. Really? That's what they were using for, it had powder in it. Yeah. The other side, I never got it loose. I don't know what it's loaded with. I told Chris, I said, that side's clear, that side's loaded, just let you know. Just let you know. Don't try shooting it. No. You know, and it, it, that was one of those shotguns that had belonged to my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And don't tell him how long it had been loaded when yeah. I got a hold of it. The interesting stuff. But I told Bud one day, I said, I need a new stock for the shop, for a different shotgun. 
He said, what's wrong with the old one? I said, I broke it. He said, how'd you break it? And I said, well, you got to understand, I broke it when I was about 10 years old. He said, well, what is it? I said, it's 12-gauge, double-barrel, double-hammered. He said, how'd you break it? And I said, I couldn't shoot it. It was 12-gauge. So when I got ready to shoot it there on the farm to kill a rabbit or something, I'd back up against a tree and put the butt up against the tree and pull yeah. the trigger. Well, trees don't give like a shoulder do. No, it no, 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 no. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, that's what you would do, all right. That's what you would do. Well, it worked. It went down. My gosh, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's a, he, he always, as I, if I'd walk into the store, he'd go, oh, no, here he comes. Here he again. comes. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably waiting to see what kind of story yeah. he had for him this time, kind of thing. <laughs> but being in the, in the wildlife, I say industry. Right. Which I have. You've covered several facets, yeah, a, a bit. Doing, yes. it, it's been been a very, very interesting career. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't know what it is now with times have changed. The game department that I went to work for and that I knew does not exist Doesn't anymore. Exist. I feel the same way about and Texas. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I'm not sure it's a good thing. I just don't know. Right. But uh, I know that when I worked, Larry, it was family. Yes. 100% family. Yes. And 40 hours, that didn't mean anything. <laughs> we got those in in two days. <laughs> when I went to work, I never took a day off for the first three years. And I was told one time, why didn't you? Well, I couldn't. There was things that had right. to be done. Exactly. And they had to be done then and not later. Right. right. But that was dedication. And I didn't care about that. I, I did the job. And the game wardens back in those days, they did the job. Yes. And they were all young men, basically from the rural community, shall we say. Yes. And not the, not the big cities. And they had different work ethics. Yes. And the job had to be done. And you always protected your partner and you did the job. And it, like I said, it was, it was family. We got together. It was strictly family. And it was fun. And it was fun. We it, had more fun than we should. You couldn't had. wait to go to work. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, that's of course, you've been that kind of way pretty much all your life. Yeah. And I have too. I mean, that, I I can't wait to wake up in the morning to go to work, kind of thing. And there's not a whole lot of people in this world that can say that. Well, I was stationed in Gallup. I had a good buddy named Herman Uly that was stationed in Grants. Big German boy. A 100% absolutely gun nut. You could search his game department pickup every day, and if you didn't find at least 15 rifles, you weren't looking. <laughs> anyway, I'd call Herman. We had a joining area. Right. I'd say I'd call him in the morning on the radio. What are you doing for lunch, Herman? Well, nothing. What are you doing? I'd say, well, meet me at the spot, and we'll have lunch. Yeah. Well, he knew what I meant. Right. And we would spend our lunch hour at one particular spot shooting prairie dogs. And I thought, where else can you do that? The game, doesn't, the game department didn't care because you were putting in 12 to 16 hours a day. Every day. And if you take an hour off to eat lunch, big deal. Absolutely. Didn't know but that, that was our yeah. reward 
for right. working. Exactly. You know? And. Uh, yeah, we did some of the same thing. I, the, the only time I ever got in trouble, really, for the gay department is because I put in too many hours. Yeah. And I, I was, unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough to tell them, yeah. you know, to not tell them about it kind of thing. And I did, and you can't be working that number. Well, uh, okay. You know, and I'll well, just totally disregard everything it said. I'll, I'll tell you, I told you the story earlier, and I'll tell it to this. About, I was stationed in Gallup, New Mexico. It's the Indian capital of New Mexico. Yes, sir. I got, I got along very good with the Navajos and the Zunis. And one day I was talking to a Zuni medicine man. And we were talking about various things in his medicine bag, cures. Right. And I saw a tuft of hair. And I thought, what in the world is that? I thought I knew my animals. And I asked him, I said, what is that? And he says, big horn sheep. My first question was, well, where in the devil did you get yes. a big orange sheep? He said, I went to Colorado, and I trapped him, and I sheared him. And I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. And he no, no, I'm not. So I thought about that for a while, and when I got home, I knew the game wardens in Colorado where the big orange sheep were. Yes, I sir. called up there. I said, I got this question, silly question for you. You'll think I've gone crazy. But have you got a sheep up there that looks different from the rest of them? And that warden says, Ron, we were flying surveys the other day, and this sheep looked like it had been sheared. He said, we don't know if it's got mites and the hair's falling out or what in the world's going on. And I said, well, let me tell you what's going on. <laughs> exactly. And that Colorado game warden says, you have got to be kidding I said, you don't know my Zuni Indians. <laughs> you know, they'll sit up there on a ledge with a net that they have woven yes. until a sheep comes by and then they will snare him. And he did. And that's exactly what he did. That is truly, truly amazing. <laughs> I mean, do you think about and I'm that? Sitting there oh going, my gosh. How in the world does he do that? <laughs> you know. But dealing with the Navajo Indians and the Zuni Indians, and, and I got along because I respected their religion and yes. their ways of life. Right. And uh, they appreciated it. I appreciated it. Uh, I was welcome on the Zuni reservation. I was welcome on the Navajo reservation. And uh, a lot of times, law enforcement was not. But uh, I learned a lot. They taught me a lot. And uh, they taught me a little bit of Navajo language, a little bit of Zuni language, you know. And, and uh, as you know, the, the eagle is federally protected. Well, a Zuni can possess an eagle. Mm -hmm. They're right. an eagle. They can keep them in a pen, and they do for the feathers. But they don't pick the feathers. They wait till they molt, and then they have feathers. And I was visiting with a, with an, a Zuni one time. And they had taken, they had killed a deer. It was deer season. They had killed a deer on the reservation. And I looked at this deer, and he's been, the, the entrails have been removed up to the diaphragm. That's yes, sir. All. And it's full of uh, pinyon branches. And I said, what's that for? And they said, we're giving the deer his last meal. I said, I respect that. And he said, well, there's a whole process that we go through. 
He said, if you'll come by the house tonight, we'll show you the process. And I said, I'd love to. So I went by, and they were taking the deer to the house. They call the clan leader. There's, there's different clans in Zuni. They call the clan, and you belong to a clan depend upon your mother's heritage. And they laid this, I watched them, they laid this deer, whole deer, hide hair and everything, out in the middle of the living room floor. And they took the wax from the corner of the eyes. Yeah, the light a pre-arbor. And they put it on the children's eyelids. Really? To give them good vision for the light. They took cornmeal and ground up turquoise and they would sprinkle it all over the deer, saying their chants. And then they would take the wax out of the ear, put it in the ears of the children to give them the hearing of the deer. deer. And I watched that whole process in awe because yes. I knew that I was one of the very few men would ever get to see that and I thought you know they showed the respect for wildlife more than the white people did oh yes yeah because when the deer would hit the ground they were saying chance right saying chance and I thought oh that's yeah to me that's one thing that if I could change about our hunting culture in the US is to as a whole, now there are people who show great respect to the animals that they take, but as a whole to have people have more respect for that animal giving its life so that you can continue to exist kind of thing. Exactly. That is and food for them. It's Yes, exactly. And that's nourishment for them. And that animal gave his life to nourish them. Yes. It's yeah, just that, like the story of the, the white bear that I told you earlier, you know. Yeah. They, they have certain things that they hold very dear right. and you're not going to change their mind but they show respect for wildlife yes and too many people larry these days do not do that no no and yeah. like know, i said that's one of my pet peeves that, that when you get right down to it is you, you need to re, you need to have respect for the animal particularly when you take him down yes you need show respect to that animal show respect to to your fellow hunters, show respect to, you know, the, the hunting, show respect for what you receive out of that animal who is given its life And I like to show respect for the animal, the way he lived, what he did in his life and right. how he operated and what he felt and whether it was this or that. You know, we were talking about the transfer of deer from one area to another to, to supplement a herd. I saw it in northern New Mexico when they would take deer from from uh, Bancas Mountain, Bancas Mesa, and transfer them over to someplace else. Yes, and I, I told him, I said, let me give you an example. That would be like taking me, taking me to New York, throwing me in the Bowery of New York at night and survive? You take a deer that's not born there, does not know the cover, does not know the water, does not know the feed, knows nothing. You know, you might as well take me to New York and throw me out in the middle of town at night because I would have about as much chance of surviving. Yes. And Same here. I had Same him here. say, you know what? That's kind of true. And I'm going, yeah, yeah. It is. I think so. It is. 
so quit. But of course now they don't. They you know they transfer animals back and forth, and, and uh, we've trapped animals here and shipped them clear to Mexico. You know, and we've taken animals from Mexico and bring them up here. You know, so you talk about being lost. How would you like to be <laughs> thrown out in the middle of a big town at night, and not know what's coming, and, and knowing that there are other people there, and the yeah. same thing with those deer, and they're knowing that there are other deer there, and yeah. most time those. Dear, are those people who are there that you're being introduced to? They're gonna hurt you. They're gonna hurt you. They don't want you there. <laughs> they don't want you there. <laughs> they don't want uh, you there. But wildlife has, has has been good. It's been an interesting, interesting trip, and I've had a lot of different aspects of being a warden, taxidermist, guide. Uh, it all revolved around wildlife, and I can, I got into wildlife. Because, to be honest with you, I was breaking the law. I was 15 years old. I was sitting on the hood of a Jeep. My buddy was driving, and I was trying to shoot dove. Never got one done. When the game warden came up, stopped me. But he didn't get out and read me the act. He was kind. He was understanding. He let me go. He eventually became the director of the game and fish department, and I worked for and him. And you worked for him? Yep. That's cool. Yep. Which one was that, Ron? Bill, Bill Humphreys. Bill Humphreys, yes. I remember that name, too. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he caught me out there on the West Mesa Albuquerque trying to shoot doves while I'm sitting on. It was all I could do to hang on to the Jeep, let alone <laughs> shoot doves. Yeah. Never did get it. <laughs> Thank goodness you didn't hit one. Yeah, kind of thing. <laughs> but his attitude, I think, was one of the reasons I became a game warden. Yes, sir. He was, a, he, was a, he was stern, but he wasn't cruel or anything like that. He was very understanding of a, of a kid. Again, you know, it kind of comes back to some of that respect stuff. I think so. You know, I, really do. I mean, because look at the respect that you had for him as a result of how you were treated. Yeah. And at the same time, he had enough respect for you to know that if he made made a comment, maybe that this wasn't yeah. the right thing you, to do, that you would well, you would change your way. I never hunted dove off the front of the jeep again. <laughs> oh my goodness! But what you do when you're a kid, I hope hope the good Lord forgives you. <laughs> I, hope so, I hope so too. I hope so too. But uh, you know, it's 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 interesting, and and like I said before, I. I've met so many interesting people, got in so many interesting yes, scrapes. Uh, don't care for snakes to this day, but uh, still had to mess with them. And some of those snake people, when we were talking about snakes, they can get pretty cruel. Uh, a good snake man, if he's catching snakes, he likes to put them in pillowcases. That's yes. the best, best way to carry them. And you always put a hot snake, a hot snake is one that will bite you and hurt you. You always put them in a colored pillowcase, the rest of them go in white. And a lot of times, if they think they're going to get caught, they'll switch, trying to get whoever the law enforcement officer is right. in trouble by being bit or whatever, you know. And But you learn those things, and you learn to deal with them. I learned to deal with one particular guy that tried that, and I didn't give him a hard time. I was stern with him and told him, you know, I know what you're trying to do. But uh, I'm not going to take you out behind the barn and beat you to death. I'm just going to, you know, handle you like I would handle anybody else. Yes, sir. 
And uh, I think they respect it in a way. Yes. Uh, I had some of those snake dealers that uh, when it was all said and done, they came to me and they said, we still like snakes, but we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep to the ones that are legal. And I said, that's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. I don't care how many you got in your house, long as you do it legally. <clears throat> and the one I was telling you about that had the Komodo dragon, he kept most of the snakes in his bedroom. How in the world can you sleep with a bunch of snakes in your bedroom? Not me. Shoot, not me. Uh, those rattlesnakes always called them bell worms. Because <laughs> they're a worm and they got this little bell on their tail. <laughs> yes, but, they do. Uh, some of the snakes that would hurt you the worst, they don't rattle. <laughs> you know. No, no. Mambas and some of the rest that we had to deal with. There was one snake, I can't remember, it comes out of South America. It's one of those... One of those three-step snakes? Used, yeah. Used to, the guys that were in that area would carry a... It looked like a cartridge carry, mm -hmm. but it had three vials yes, of sir. serum in them. And if they got bit, it was out quick, give yourself a yeah. shot before you die. Yeah. And I'm going, I don't want to be there. No, 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 no. I don't no, need to be no, there. No, 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 no need to put yourself in there. And there's people situation. that think those snakes are just great and won't keep one in the house, and I got kids. And, I can't uh, imagine... <coughs> Boy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Ron, it's, it's been an absolutely great evening spending time with you. We started early today, and I wish we'd recorded everything that we had to say oh, earlier. <laughs> but uh, I've got to get up early in the morning, and it's getting late. I think we're, the coals of the fire have got to burn out here for yeah, the night. That's so. for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Absolutely, Larry. I'll tell you what. You and I have enjoyed each other's company for more years than we want to count. Amen. But and, they've and all been great. They've days. all been great. We ain't quite finished yet. Oh, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> There's still more to come, people. More Amen. Come. <laughs> Thank you all so very much for joining us today. And we'll be back here with you next week. And, and uh, in the meantime, you know, think about some of the things that Ron talked about tonight and, and uh you might even want to listen to the stories a second time and maybe not make them yours, but you can talk about this New Mexico game to Wharton that had all kinds of great experiences in his life, and you can tell those stories about Mr. Ron Porter. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfires. <laughs> DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas, H3 Whitetail Solutions, Remington, Texas Wildlife Association, TRHP Outdoors. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.